grumble and become sick. And God appoints that a bronze serpent should be crafted and put on the top of a pole. And that pole would be set up. And everyone who would look to that providence of God, everyone who would see it, God has given us that to look to, was going to be healed by God. Now, the Bible tells us in John chapter 3 that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Bunch of sick people walking around in the wilderness, kind of homeless. And God says, all right, you're going to be sick and die, but I'm going to give you a bronze serpent. And if you look at that serpent, you're going to live. You're not going to be sick anymore. That's gracious. But it's not grace upon grace. Jesus himself being lifted up at Calvary and giving us not just physical health, but eternal life. That's more grace, right? So grace upon grace doesn't mean that the old grace was somehow not gracious. It just means there's better. So let me, let me speak again about the, the ditches. How does a Christian handle the law of God? Don Carson gives us one warning. He says this. It is unreasonable to think that verses 16 and 17 of John 1 can view the grace that has come in Christ as somehow abolishing, getting rid of the law. The thought here is not for the reader to dismiss what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Not any part of the law is going to pass away. So one ditch would be for, what is this certain allure of antinomianism. Let me give you another word picture I think might help. Antinomian means uh, no law. Uh, It's a big word that means there's no law. We're in Christ. Law doesn't exist anymore. Sit on the couch, eat the potato chips. No law, okay? That's antinomian. Paul was criticized of being antinomian because he preached the gospel of grace. Nothing against potato chips. (laughs) John 1, telling us that Jesus is grace upon grace, or in addition to, or instead of, the grace of the law, isn't telling the Christian to kill and bury the law. But yet, there are this, this growing confusion among Christians about what to do with the law. And, and the law becomes something they really can't even discuss. Like, what about the law? I, I don't know, I don't know. Don't talk to me about it. It's confusing. And, and we have all these verbs, all these commands in the New Testament. Some of them are indicative. They tell us things God has done. Like, look what God has done. They're action words of what God has done. But then there's all these other verbs that tell us what we're supposed to do. They're imperative. You must do these things. And then this generation of Christians going, ah, Jesus is grace upon grace. I don't know what to do with that instruction. Obey it. Because, listen, the other warning is from Lloyd-Jones. So I told you there's a ditch, antinomianism. It's unreasonable to think that what Jesus is saying, or what John is saying, that Jesus is grace upon grace, means the law is not grace. But Lloyd-Jones warns us the other way. Listen closely to this, and think about the way you share the gospel here. The true preaching of the gospel of salvation by grace alone always leads to the possibility of our being charged with antinomianism. 
no law. You hear that? Lloyd-Jones, I think, appropriately says, when we really preach the gospel right, we make ourselves vulnerable to being criticized as antinomian. So much resting in Christ and grace, salvation, that, wait a minute, you have no works left. What are you doing to make yourself acceptable to God? Nothing. That's antinomia, right? So that's the other ditch. Is that we will preach a gospel that is so grace-saturated that maybe people would think we're antinomian. The grace to us is a grace upon the covenant of the law. Listen to Romans 3.21. In Romans 1, 2, and the first half of 3, the people are just being judged under the light of law. They have disobeyed. They have done evil. And then all of a sudden, there's words of hope in Romans 3.21. The righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. So you're guilty of violating the law. You're guilty of violating the law. You're guilty of violating the law. And then verse 21. This is the first expression of good news in the Gospel of Romans. It's 3.21. But, in the end, it won't be about how you measured up to the law because the righteousness of God has been made known apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That itself is gracious. That the law preaches that you need Jesus is gracious. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You see, the issue, though, is as John wrote, his audience had made the law an end to itself. Keep it and live. Violate it and die. But there's grace upon grace. Jesus Christ, in his fullness, is more grace than law-keeping. The grace of the incarnate word tabernacles with us. advances the grace that was previously a promise and tells us about grace forevermore. So in other words, here's what I, I, I want you to stand in this moment and hear grace upon grace and not just think, oh yeah, in history there was a grace, but this one's better, the end. I want you to stand at this moment and see not just that Jesus is grace upon grace, but that Jesus is still, as we look forward, going to be more grace. There is more grace coming in Jesus than what we know right now. I'm going to explain that in the next point. I want to say this, though, before I move away from this point. There, there are people I don't know here today. Um, I had a chance to meet some of you. I was glad to meet some of you. Some family are here. But I, I don't know you, and I don't know your spiritual life or lack of spiritual life. And I want to say this about John 1 and who Jesus is. I want you to know that when we preach this gospel of Jesus Christ, we are not preaching to you, behave. We are preaching, behold. The, the, the first thing you would hear from us as the good news of Jesus Christ is not, 
a way for you to live better. That is not our message. It is not for you to behave. It is for you to behold. Look at grace that advances beyond grace in Jesus Christ. So I want you to know that that's, that's the passion of our good news to you today. It's not live a better life, read the Bible, and obey more. It is look at Jesus Christ and live like the serpent lifted up so that people would not die in their sickness. Jesus Christ is to be lifted up so that we would not die in our sin. Let's look, let's look ahead then. Let's look to number two. And it's found in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, in John 1.18, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John does it again. And I don't know if this is inspired or if John was just clever, but he uses clumsy language to make certain things ambiguous. I, I told you he did it once before, up in verse 14. He does it again in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God. Now, I'm left wondering, what do you mean the only God? Comma, who is at the Father's side, right? He does that again, making us confess, I don't know if you're talking about the Son or the Father. Yeah. Yeah, the only God who's at God's side. <laughs> he has made him known. That's wonderful. And I don't know if the Spirit of God had to intervene and make John more clever to do that with language, or if John just did that stuff. I don't know. But we are meant to understand that there is Equality between the Father and the Son, by John's language. No one has ever seen God. That was a huge confession in Judaism. They literally concluded, yeah, obviously, because if you did, you would die. Now, we New Testament uh, uh, students might, or New Testament era students might say, well, what about Moses? I, I shared with you last week, Moses didn't see God. Moses saw what would be most literally described as the afterglow of God. Moses' face was burned seeing where God had most recently been. <laughs> In Numbers 12.8, it's described as the form of God. Maybe we could think of shadow. We said, well, yeah, but Isaiah, Isaiah walks in the temple and boom, there's God. Nope, nope. No, the hem of God's robe is there. <laughs> you know, that's what it is. He saw the, the, the glory of the Lord and his train filled the temple. The train that literally means the hem, the bottom part of the robe where you fold it and sew it so it doesn't unravel. <laughs> Isaiah saw the hem and the temple shakes and the angels are whisking all around the temple, praising God and shouting. And Isaiah's like, oh, I'm gonna die. I saw the bottom of God's robe. You know, no one's ever seen God. And they thought that if you did, you were certain to die. Exodus 33, Deuteronomy 4, Isaiah 97, all communicate that. But John says, no one has ever seen him, but the word has made him known to us. The word who is at the Father's side. Um... That's not, that's not the most accurate way to see the throne. 
at the father's side. Literally, at the side is more like, um, we have two comparisons to this. It is to be in the bosom of, it's to be like, like held by. Let me give you this one. You know, in, uh, in the upper room, when the description, they're all, they're all kind of leaning at the table. They're sitting kind of on the floor and they're leaning near a table. And the Bible describes one of the apostles as being at his bosom, at his side. That's, you're laying and you're leaning on this arm and you're eating with this hand. And, and there's another apostle laying right here. So yeah, you can say it's by the side, but it's, it's, it's in the lap of. There's another one that Jesus gives when he tells the story about uh, the rich man and Lazarus. And he says that Lazarus had, was, was in uh, Abraham's bosom. He was in a place where he was being held by Abraham. So here we have Jesus being described as making known the Father to us because he is in the Father's bosom. <laughs> so you've got a throne. And again with John, right? Like you don't have all oh, the big throne, the most important throne, and then, oh, over here, a secondary throne. You don't have that language from John. You have God the Father sitting on the throne, and then in his bosom is the one who makes the Father known to us. No one has ever seen God except the one who is from God. John six forty six, The one who is in the bosom of the Father. The beloved Son, the incarnate word, simultaneously God and with God. He's broken down the barrier that made it impossible for human beings to see God. And he's made God known to us. And Jesus would say this twice in John. In John 6, 46 and 14, 9, he would say, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. We picture it this way. We might say, what is God like? And John would say, well, Jesus. He says Jesus is the exegesis of God. That's literally the word, to make known. It's to exegete. (laughs) That's what I'm trying to do right now, depending on the spirit, honestly. I'm trying to make known John 1, exegete. That's that's when we preach the Bible like this, when we preach through verses, we're exegeting. We're pulling out and showing. Jesus comes from the bosom of God and shows Another word for exegete is to narrate. Jesus is the true story of God. I like language. Isn't that good? That's helpful, right? Jesus is the true story of God. Jesus is the narration. While Jesus gives life, he is life. While Jesus raises the dead, he is the resurrection. While Jesus gives bread, he himself is the bread. While Jesus speaks truth, he is the truth. So as he speaks to the word or speaks the word of truth, he himself is the word of truth. He has made God known to us. Now that is significant in that it tells us that Jesus, again, is co-equal with God. Jesus isn't going anywhere. Jesus hasn't finished his job, you know, dusted his hands off and said, well, I I hope that sticks. Jesus is the guarantor of future grace. It's because of Christ that we can be confident that we don't have just, okay, we got Jesus more than law. Now, let me do better. Future grace, 
comes from the guarantee that Jesus is with the Father. And that, in other words, I think I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'm excited to say this to you. If Jesus were not with the Father forevermore, there would be no grace for us at the judgment. Because here, here's what I mean to say. I hope this is helpful. I think about a lot of different people hearing this and different ways pe- people receive things. You know the expression, well, it's grandfathered in? We are not grandfathered into eternal life. We're not going to get grandfathered in. Like, oh, Jesus died on the cross. Now, you, don't worry, you'll be fine. You're not grandfathered in. He is always interceding to the Father. He's not going away. He is our hope of future grace. The theme of coexistence, co-equality, I think is cemented by reading verses 1 and 18 together. Let's read them together. Um, Just listen to verse 1. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Our grace to come is assured to us by the fullness of Christ. The grace that we receive in the advent of Christ isn't just grace something better than what was past. It's grace and something that is better than what is present. Hebrews 13.5 Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Christ is a gracious confidence of our future grace. I don't know. I just want to say one word about future grace before I go to my close here. Um, I don't know if we think much about future grace. The concept of future grace is something every Christian has to hold tightly to. In other words, we look back to when we first believed and we know that our salvation from sin's judgment was gracious. I didn't deserve that. I hadn't anything to earn it. It was gracious. But then we're tempted, like Paul says to the church at Galatia, you're tempted to turn away to another gospel. Like, yeah, okay, okay thank you for forgiving me by grace. Now, I will do my best to never need your grace again. <laughs> Just confess and be thankful that you're going to need it and you're going to get it every second. One author describes it this way. He says, in a book titled Future Grace, he says, picture God's grace not as something you experience one moment in your life, but picture God's grace like standing in a raging river. And the grace of God is the rapids of water that flows past you. Every second, as soon as you stop to go, oh, that was, wait, more. It's just always more and new and necessary. It's just necessary. And so, so then, I, I just want to say a quick word about debtor's ethic. Debtor's ethic is dangerous because it comes from sometimes good intention. 
It says, no, I I don't want to always just be soaking up God's grace. I feel terrible about that. I want to do better. I'm going to get up and get out of the river. So I won't need that anymore. I won't won't be in danger of abusing grace because I'll I'll get up out of the river and I'll say, no, I'm going to do better now. I don't need your grace anymore. That's debtor's ethic. That's not okay. The very thought that you can walk to the bank of the river and not depend on grace is itself a sin. Confidence and delight and joy in the future grace of God because of Christ our everlasting King is worth celebrating. He is our hope in future grace. I'll describe what I mean. Revelation chapter 1, please, if you'd join me. Revelation chapter 1, all the way to the end here. And we'll read verse 12 through 18. This is what I mean by having Christ and therefore confidence in future grace. Revelation 1, 12. John is getting this description of things coming. And it's amazing his interaction here. John says in Revelation 1.12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, a gold sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool white, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like a roaring water. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell down at his feet as though I was dead Remember, everyone everyone who sees God dies, right? John says, that's it. I've seen God, and now I'm going to die. But instead, he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Yeah, the Alpha and Omega, that's what I was afraid of. That's why I fell down. You see God, you die. Telling me you're the Alpha and Omega doesn't make me less concerned I'm going to die. The living one. Yeah, I am, the self-existent. Yeah. Wait. Verse 18. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. If Christ is our grace upon grace, then his being alive forevermore, his being king, his being interceder, is really, really imperative to our future grace. I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and hell. Write therefore these things. Those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands and seven stars and the angels and the seven churches. The seven lampstands are seven churches. Record what's going to happen. I'm going to be here 
forevermore. I died, but now I'm alive. So here's Christ is described in John 1 as grace upon grace. And we can look back to the law, and I hope you see the law of God as being a grace. God giving us instruction on how to live. Like a parent saying, don't touch the stove. Graciously. But that wasn't enough. Because we kept touching the stove. So there's more grace. It's Jesus. Grace instead of grace. In Jeremiah 31, we have there the, uh, the description of what the new covenant is. You had this old covenant that was law-keeping, and you have the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, 31, the Bible says that God will graciously take the law out of our weak hands, right? Like God took stone tablets and set them in your hands and said, okay, hold this, and you'll be fine. Okay. And for like 30 seconds, we were like, yeah, okay. I've got the law, stone tablets in my hands. I got this. And then like a minute, two minutes, three minutes, and so, I don't got it. I dropped it. I broke the law. Yeah, I know. And Jeremiah 31 says, okay, I'm going to take those heavy tablets out of your hands and I'm going to write them on your heart. I'm going to make you new. In Romans chapter 7, the law of God written on our heart, but whether it's Galatians or Romans 7, you know Romans 7 is where Paul says, ah, all the things I should do, I don't. All the things I shouldn't do, I do. He says this about himself. Paul, not heavy law, stones in his hands, but written on his heart. Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of sin? So the grace of the law was true. The grace of Christ, Paul's a new creation. And he's wretched man. And then Jesus says something in John 14. In John 14, 1 through 14, he says, I'm not going to stay with you. I'm going to leave. And I'm going to go prepare our togetherness forever. And John says that what that togetherness means is that we'll be like him when we see him. Free from the infections of our ongoing struggle with sin. The law said, you're a sinner who needs Jesus Christ. More grace said, I'm a new creation, yet I sin. More grace says, I'm going to take you out of that place where you were vulnerable to ongoing sinning, and I'm going to put you together with me forever where there won't only be the freedom from guilt, there will be the freedom from influence to sin. And we'll have fellowship, and we'll have harmony, and we'll have life everlasting. Jesus is not just better than the law. Jesus is better than life. Jesus is alive forevermore, and in him, we still anticipate grace better than grace. 
We celebrate the Advent, Jesus is born. And we could be a church that kind of says, oh, okay, well, now I don't have a law. But I would say to you what 1 Corinthians 15 says. If, in fact, we are living in a moment where we anticipate more grace, being resurrected from the dirt after we die, and being alive together with the Lord, co-heirs together, free from sin's infection and influence, if that's coming, then Paul says, if there's more grace coming, then we can live in light of that right now. We can go forward from Christmas weekend with a joyful celebration, not just because of what has happened, but what is coming. Heaven is coming. So don't grow weary. Just pastorally, I would comment there's a lot to grow weary with. I, I met a young man this morning who's a, who's a law officer. Very thankful that you serve our community and law enforcement. But if you're a law, I mean, it's hard, right? There's a lot to grow weary with, right? Like people are messed up. True? True. <laughs> Captain Graham says it's true. And, and I would say to, to people like you, don't grow weary in all this well-doing because we know there's grace coming. There's a lot of reasons for us to lose our joy, lose heart, stop praising, stop worshiping, Jesus is grace upon grace upon grace. We can, we can live in light of that. We can be a faithful, transformed, joy-filled, worshiping church because Jesus is more grace than what we already even have. Let's pray. Father God, because of Christ alone, we have this hope. We have this joy, this delight, and this worship we are thankful to be able to celebrate the arrival of our King Jesus, our Savior, Kinsman, Redeemer. But Lord, we right now also are thankful that your word has reminded us that he is alive forevermore. He is ever interceding and he has gone to prepare a place so that we will be together. Not only together in proximity, but Lord, we will be together in unity and harmony, freed from sin finally receiving grace upon grace. So Lord, make us to worship and delight in Jesus because of who he is, reigning in glory, to not lose heart with all the, uh, the frustration that's outside of us, that's inside of us, but to keep singing that he is grace upon grace upon grace. And so we pray to you, with really thankful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.